Hello, and it's a very warm welcome to 2021's first episode of Women Build, brought to you by World Architecture News from Alison and Nav. In today's episode, we speak to two women who are working hard to make the global built environment more sustainable. We are joined by Lisa Bate, Global Sustainability Lead and Senior Principal at B Plus H Architects in Canada, and Mia Lira, founder of Studio MLA in the US. Mia talks about putting roads on diets, yes you did hear that correctly, and how to make a city as developed as LA more sustainable, while Lisa talks us through the steps needed to make Humber College Building NX, which was the most inefficient on campus, but became the first net zero carbon design certified retrofit building in Canada. So perhaps I could put the first question to you, Mia. What do you think sustainability actually means? I uh, think that actually the term sustainability is sort of being somehow shadowed by the, the term resiliency, what sustainability means and the way of implementing strategies with a certain agenda and metrics and goals to really address, you know, both the habitable spaces in buildings, but also sites and the interstitial spaces. So I think in my community, we talk about resiliency because it is a a term that addresses a longer time span and that really gets it to this next place of sort of a holistic approach to to planning cities where we uh, we can go beyond borders because you know governance borders mean nothing as we're trying to solve the larger climate change issues and lisa how would you define sustainability i think it is a system i think you know i keep using the word ecosystem today even within the world green building council and i very much with the partners and the stakeholders and the ecosystem of stakeholders and funders and founders of the green building movement, which goes beyond buildings, but also with uh, relationships with so many other allied organizations that, you know, really looking at this, how do we get to net zero carbon operational as well as, you know, in terms of from day one, but also that whole, sorry, I should say embodied carbon, the whole supply chain. What is the health and well-being of planet and people and even financial systems And then what is the circular economy that we've got to create that whatever we take is able to be returned with neutral impact and or positive impact, or how can it be refed into the system? So I see all of it very circular, all, you know, I I see visuals, it's a network, it's definitely something that repeats itself. What do you think you've gained from your experiences in different countries? You've worked in Asia, India, Canada to China. So what is the difference really in the approaches to sustainability that you've seen? I think it's ecosystem thinking. So and I think one size misfits all. And I think there are parts in different regions, depending on climate, depending on culture that are highlighted within those countries. So when I lived in China, ironically, the first projects I worked on in China were from Canada, and we won the Fengjing Canada Maple Town, one city 
nine town competition. So there's a Germany town, there's an Italy town, and the Canada town that we designed was firmly based on sustainability. I'd like to talk to you about the NX building, part of the Humber College's North Campus. How important is the ability to retrofit buildings, do you think, as a part of sustainability, the push towards sustainability? Critical. When we think about the globe and we recognize each region, each continent is in a different place. But if you look at Europe and you look at most of the Americas, we have a lot of existing building infrastructure and it does not make sense to tear down and redo, uh, rebuild, because that carbon equation does not make sense. So, you know, with Humber College, we were really, really fortunate to have great client champions who signed up for this. And ironically, they actually built it into their education system. Uh, some of my colleagues um, took place in studio courses with their architectural technology program and worked with the students. So the students were involved. It's the group think, not individual think. And uh, where they are now, they are the first net zero carbon retrofit in Canada, uh, waiting for the operational performance. The first couple of months that they were able to do was like, 70% even lower than projected. So it was a highly inefficient building. And what we really focused on was the building envelope and upgrading that before we looked really into the systems with innovative energy efficiency methods and really world-class environmental technologies. And we now know it uses 70% less energy than it was before. And what's interesting is it has now influenced the design of five other construction projects you know, it is triple pane glazing. It is a new variable refrigerant flow, a VRF mechanical system. It all was installed while the building was completely occupied. Uh, for the energy geeks out there, it's uh, on track. Once again, we're not currently, everyone's on work or study from home, but it's uh, into 63 equivalent uh, work hours per meter squared per year, making it one of the most efficient buildings in North America. And uh, and, and I think it's now using 97% less heating energy and 70%, as I said, overall than before. Uh, comfort scores are through the roof. It was done in a year and a half while occupied, which was unbelievable. And recognition, again, we're talking about Toronto's climate. We're talking about extreme humidity in the summer. We're talking about cold in the winter and quite a humid uh, environment. And were there any unexpected challenges that the job threw up? You know, one unique challenge was, of course, this occupation during renovation. Um, so we had to really plan the extensive envelope upgrades to be able to accomplish mainly from the outside of the building to avoid occupant disruption. And so that limited the availability. Um, we also found because we were following the Passive House certification out of Germany, it was the high cost of building materials so that we really had to manage those kinds of things because the budget was not excessive. And it was also partially funded by an Ontario, the province of Ontario in Canada, a greenhouse gas campus retrofit program. So it's a really innovative grant fund from our federal government. It's, it's not active now, but it really gave the colleges, universities an opportunity to compete for this funding to showcase the projects and deep retrofits. So we're seeing a lot of movement, even with that, with our you know, Infrastructure Bank of Canada and, and I think with that, we had stakeholders that were 
you know, kind of on the side, including this Ontario Greenhouse Gas Campus retrofit. So often what we thought, you know, were our scorecard or what we had to pay attention to, there would be something kind of come out of, and even doing Passive House from Germany is very restrictive. So we kind of signed up to a bunch of systems and tools and funding that made us have to constantly think at a strategic level. And if you were advising somebody to look at buildings and think about how they would approach a retrofit and funding possibly wasn't as available as as you had, what would you say were the key concerns that the most important things to look at? Are there any easy wins? The looking at return on investment, because what may seem like an expensive one time during construction, if you model it, you know, and you look at even even if it's around, you know, human health, and I know sometimes people find this a bit, you know, goofy, but happiness scores, you know, especially now with us all under a pandemic and work from home and concern about our own, you know, mental as well as physical health. You know, there is that piece that you look at that return of investment. One, a very early building that I, I worked on that was a new build that then outperformed for the developer against their triple class A existing building that is a world-renowned design, they then had to retrofit that building because the people that had moved to the new building, the, the companies that chose to move, their attitude is, if I'm paying X rent and I'm paying the developer, I'm paying occupancy costs versus consumption costs, I'd rather pay you more and the utility less. So even though the new building cost more, they moved because they liked the idea. And also that new building had like an internal rate of return. And this is 2009 of less than seven years. So you have to think about that whole life cycle. You have to think about that whole cost equation and where the money goes and whose pocket it's going into, if it's going into pockets that don't feed back into the building itself or the, or the tenants and the, and the owner operators. Okay, so it's a, it's, sort of, it's a continual process here to, to ensure that a building is going to work long term sustainably. So I think advancing net zero, I think health and well-being of people and planet and circular economy, that is a circular building system. That is a circular economy thinking applied to a building system. And, and I would say, you know, with, 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 with Mia uh, in this conversation, well, you think the same, you know, in terms of looking at cities and you look the same when you're looking at landscapes, you're looking at parks, you're looking at public outdoor infrastructure. You know, I think that's really important. Amir, you spent a lot of time throughout your career working on various LA river related projects. Could you tell us a bit more about the importance of the river revitalization plan and how it would be possible to make a city as developed as LA more sustainable? I think it's uh, really important to note that um, there's been a, a lot of advances in terms of policy and legislation regarding water conservation and all sorts of sort of net zero or approaches to our electric grid. Um, So there's a tremendous amount of appetite and commitment uh, at the larger scale to really address uh, issues that, you know, kind of end up landing in large piece of infrastructure. And by the way, We've been planning for improvements along the LA River, along, of of course, many other teams have done so too. Um, But we've also been uh, working on the tributaries. So the initial tidies just did the stem. And that's part of what I know, sort of in terms of 
when I talk about being an urbanist and think, thinking the bigger picture, at some point, you know, if some of our clients started saying, well, what about the tributaries? And we started saying, yeah, what about the tributaries? Imagine, we have to study the system. What we also found is, of course, that there's areas of the L.A. basin where there's been a lot of social sort of exclusion, economic barriers. And by thinking of the larger system and putting forward strategies that are, you know, codified in, in their goals and there's funding in bonds that actually allow you to, you know, get grants to do projects as cities, because we have, you know, 88 cities and an unincorporated area and then L.A. County. So we have a governance sort of mess with 19 million people where where there's many different players, the individual cities, the larger county, the larger agencies, and it's complicated. But it also gives us an advantage because we can really strategize on big picture solutions that we can implement over time. And that's what the LA River offers. It offers bikeways. It offers a lot of urban forest, rivering forests. We are in dire need of housing in Los Angeles. So densification and allowing for these sort of green buildings to come together where they're just finishing in Los Angeles, the downtown community plan, uh, which is has a long area along the arts district uh, along the river and the opportunity of doing some really interesting work there. And bridges, making sure that the city is, you know, uh, basically accessible and that one can actually access large parks that are one side of the river, communities on the other side that have always had a hard time getting there. And so connectivity, economic vitality associated with this, opportunities for jobs, both in in sort of the, the building of these projects, but also businesses. And, and housing. So this, it's like, a, it's, a, it's a new offering, a new space that has now been accepted as an opportunity. You know, respect your river, which we didn't do here. If you do need these long rail lines, think twice about where you put them, which is where landscape architecture becomes a part of this dialogue is that we always think of systems and we look at looking at all of them, whether it's it's water, it's soil, it's air, it's land use, any kind of existing natural lands. And you start really thinking of these layers before you do your new development. And you think, where where is the least impact that I could I would have on these important systems before I start, you know, damming the river or encasing the river or erasing a lake or any number of things that have been going on. We all have the opportunity to share our knowledge and whether it's the students coming to Canada, America and other countries that have really been thinking about these issues, the, the kind of consulting that we can do in those countries to really try to help enlighten people of how to deal with with these projects. So in LA, you know, that encasing a river in concrete is no more. You just don't do that ever again. And, and what I'm hearing is, is the importance really of working with the environment from the get-go, right from the start, to see the best possible solution in a very holistic way. Yes, yes. 
and then, you know, developing different parts of a city in such a way that, of course, you are creating residential and, and commercial and educational areas, but they're somehow integrated and that the systems all work together. And I think also it's important to see what elements of this learning really can be taken into other environments and successfully implemented. And I think the key thing here really is, as you said, respect rivers going forward. So we are actually right now engaged in an opportunity, for example, in Peru for a biodiversity study for the country. There are many countries who are really looking to do it right. And in some ways, possibly these less developed countries can gain now from the experiences and the mistakes possibly that that could be perceived to have been made in these other more developed communities it's actually then gaining some knowledge, isn't it, from a mistake, which is worth having. I think that's correct. I think in some ways in the Middle East, some of the countries are really benefiting from this new knowledge. And and then, then as it turns out, they have funding. And so they're doing these amazing projects. What do you think is needed to secure a more sustainable environment? Do you think it's policy change, legislation? Do you think it's a push from the public? And is there enough recognition of the problem? My thoughts possibly are that people don't know what they could have because they don't have it. So how can we move the agenda along so people then know what to ask for? Well, I think that coming from a very forward-thinking state, the state of California, there is a tremendous amount of uh, sort of knowledge base, acknowledgement. We started decades ago with many programs of sort of water conservation, recycling 40 years ago. At the time, it was basically voluntary activities. Many nonprofits not only California nonprofits, but national nonprofits started taking on the mandate. And uh, it's the most important climate law in the books in the United States, according to MIT Technology Review. So we have a, a tremendous amount of sort of deep thinking about water, air, energy, Open space. So going into open space, there is, of course, a tremendous interest in in the urban forest and urban ecology and the value that it brings. And so there are so many, in terms of the urban forest, a lot of work happening and the whole notion of urban ecology. It is, you know, where we were all pleased with every project when you could get a tree in every 25 feet to make it more uh, sort of pedestrian friendly, we're now advocating for many more opportunities to really put roads on diets, understand which parts of the roads are really, really necessary and start lining boulevards with trees, streets with trees, taking advantage of underutilized lands that cross the city, including the LA River, uh, which is this, you know, rather wide tranche of land that crosses the city and became a sort of a barrier between east and west, north and south. And now we have the opportunity to deal with this storm single purpose piece of infrastructure, which was to take stormwater fast 52 miles down to the ocean. 
So policies to keep the water in the city, to make the city more permeable, to reclaim, use reclaim water for irrigation, like we have done in some of our projects. All those water policies actually allow for the river to gain a new sort of a very important service the city in, in very different ways, whether it's space to plant large masses of trees or new housing and to really start connecting environmentally, socially and economically in a big way. We also have freeways that are actually very redundant now, given that we do have public transportation and a real passion on the part of the new generation with bicycles. And so we think that there's going to be a lot of this space that we can use to really change how the city looks and feels and what the services, the ecological services are that it gives for the environment and water and pollination. And we think about all this, this cycle of food and sort of cleaner air and, and better, you know, a better, better set of public spaces and inter- uh, that, that we can deliver and work on. And these are all driven by policy, a lot of research, a lot of legislation, funding, and actually future-proofing. So some of these plans are saying we would like to get there, but we want to check where we are in 25 years. You're retrofitting, in some ways, the the road scheme. You're repurposing the land that has been used for facilities that perhaps aren't needed now. You know, the infrastructure that once basically fed the city for a single purpose, which is transportation, goods movement, you know, drainage, now can be a new canvas, you know, and it can sort of integrate into the types of buildings that Lisa is talking about, you know, repurposing these buildings and really finding ways for where there was industry or uh, other kinds of uses where now the city is starting, even with COVID-19, given how spread out LA County is, there is an opportunity and its goal and an objective is to densify. So we're not everywhere. We're, you know, trying to do collective improvements so that we live and play and work in an environment that is um, healthier and that we allow in between spaces to to give us that sense of expansion. And did you say there earlier that you you were putting roads on a diet or did I mishear? Yes, yes. So, you know, just that the act of asking the, the department of the highway, the local uh, the street departments in the, in the city and just saying, and again, this goes to speak to how forward thinking many of our engineers are. So, the, you know, the, the engineer that now deals with street services is actually one that was before in, in another department. And, you know, he is actually a very passionate environmentalist. And so when we say, well, do you really need 150 feet, you know, four lanes in each direction in this particular area? He said, well, no, well, let's talk about it. So you do analysis and you realize, no, you probably just need, given the bus system and the metro system and the bikeways, maybe you just need four. And so now you end up with, you know, much wider sidewalks, many more trees, and just a new way of thinking about how the city becomes 
sort of ecologically and environmentally much more uh, livable. And, and a much healthier ecosystem. Um, can I put the same question to you, Lisa? What do you think needs to, to be put in place to secure a more sustainable built environment? Building off of what, what Maya was saying, it's interesting. The former minister of the environment from Finland during Climate Week 2019 announced in a press conference that buildings need to go on a diet. So I think we all agree all of these systems need to go on a diet. And and the other piece too that I think hearing Maya speak as well is this idea of shoulder spaces. You know, what are these in-between spaces? And also just even thinking about roads, what are roads for? And I know out of our Seattle team, we did a real stake in the ground because there's a bridge at end of life. And I believe in the US there are about 200 bridges in even the Pacific Northwest, or at least West Coast, that are at end of life. So looking at mass timber, once again, what is the embodied carbon and and how do you try and bring down that embodied carbon using uh, responsible forest stewardship and using mass timber in that regard? And a, a design that we've done for a bridge uh, in, in Vancouver, which is because the other bridge is congested with vehicular traffic, but can you put in a bridge that only services vehicles of mass transit? You know, is it um, an LRT system uh, and allowing pedestrian and cyclists and allied cyclists, because we know now there's all kinds of, of different ways of modes of transportation that are not car, that are not vehicle driven. So I think it is exactly that. I do think it's also all of the public policy, the legislation, uh, it's carrot and stick. It's in it's um, pulling the market. It's enabling the market. We find so often that market drives often policy follows. And if we're able to do that, because policy always takes so long to actually get things in place. I think that we really want to recognize that the world is diverse. So the tools and and um, system to put in place is diverse. But I think if we design for people and we design to pull the market, it's always really hard or being attractive to the market, then that's what gets done. We welcome your feedback on the pod. So please aim all your comments at wan-editorial at haymarket.com. These podcasts are available on Spotify, iTunes and Google Podcasts. So register, download and join us as we look into the world of architecture from a female perspective, wherever you are. Thank <laughs> you.